From New York, this is Democracy Now! We heard them. They're calling out, asking for help. They asked to be rescued. We cannot rescue them. How can we rescue them? Nobody has come since this morning. Nobody. We have nobody. Look around. Look. More than 5,000 people have died in Turkey and Syria. It could be far higher after a pair of earthquakes devastated the region. The death tolls expected to dramatically keep rising as search and rescue efforts intensify. The strongest earthquake to hit Turkey since 1939 when 30,000 people died in a quake. We'll get the latest. Then to the Alphabet Boys. A new podcast exposes how the FBI infiltrated Black Lives Matter protests after the police killing of George Floyd. The FBI infiltrated the racial justice movement in the summer of 2020 by hiring a violent felon to be an informant and then try to set up activists in crimes. The reason the FBI targeted these activists had nothing more to do than First Amendment protected activities. We'll speak to investigative reporter Trevor Aronson who broke the story, as well as a former FBI agent and a Denver activist who says he was entrapped by an FBI agent. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has declared a three-month state of emergency after the death toll from Monday's catastrophic earthquakes topped 5,000 and continues to rise exponentially. The World Health Organization warns the number of dead could ultimately increase eightfold, with some 23 million people affected by two major earthquakes that struck South southeastern Turkey and northern Syria. Hundreds of aftershocks followed. The quakes caused thousands of buildings to collapse, trapping people under rubble amidst freezing temperatures in the early morning hours. In Turkey's border province of Hatay, residents anxiously search for loved ones among the wreckage. Our relatives are dead. My sister's daughter died. She was 17. My sister's in-laws' children are stranded under rubble. She's there with three children. They are not rescued yet. God, please help us. Please pray for us. I beg you, pray for us. Pray for us. There are aftershocks. It's uncertain what will happen to us. The earthquake struck as fighting continued along the Turkey-Syria border between Turkish forces and Kurdish fighters. The United Nations reports more than 4 million people in northwest Syria, where the deadly earthquake struck, already rely on humanitarian assistance. The U.N.'s humanitarian coordinator for Syria said Monday the quakes preventing aid workers from accessing northern Syria through the single border crossing into the region. The infrastructure is damaged. Uh, roads that we used to use for for uh, humanitarian work are damaged. We have to be creative in how to get to the people and how to get to them the, the assistance. 
We'll have latest on earthquakes after headlines. Ukrainian officials say Russia's military is massing hundreds of thousands of troops for a renewed offensive in eastern Ukraine set to begin as early as next week. This comes amidst heavy fighting in the eastern Donetsk region, where Russian troops are attempting to encircle the city of Bakhmut. Here in the United States, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is in Washington, D.C., today for talks with senior Biden administration officials and congressional leaders. His trip comes a day after the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for an end to the conflict in Ukraine, saying he fears the world is sleepwalking into a wider war. In Hong Kong, authorities have opened a trial for 47 pro-democracy activists and politicians accused of violating a sweeping national security law imposed in 2020. Sixteen of the activists have pleaded not guilty to the charges, which could see them sent to prison for life. Chinese authorities have accused the activists of conspiring to commit subversion by holding an unofficial primary election. This is Chan Poying, a longtime activist with the League of Social Democrats and spouse of a former legislator who's among the 47 facing charges. For the League of Social Democrats and many Hong Kong people, it would never have occurred to them that participating in the primaries and participating in the Legislative Council in a peaceful manner would be considered illegal means. We will wait and see what the prosecution side says the reasons are. But we think that participation in the primary election is not guilty. So, we think this is a political repression and all those arrested should be released. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine ordered residents of the village of East Palestine to evacuate their homes and businesses Monday after a freight train crash spread smoke and toxic chemicals into the community 50 miles northwest of Pittsburgh. You need to leave. You just need to leave. We're ordering you to leave. Uh, this is a matter of life and death. On Friday evening, a freight train derailment triggered a massive fire that engulfed the surrounding area in smoke and threatened to cause a major explosion. The wreckage contained poisonous chemicals, including phosgene, hydrogen chloride and vinyl chloride. On Monday, the train's operator, Norfolk Southern, said it carried out a controlled release of the chemicals into the air. Some residents of East Palestine, who packed into emergency shelters, said they'll be reluctant to return to their homes. The creek by my house had a very, very strong chemical smell to it. Um, I went in my house, it was worse. I gathered clothes up and left. Um, when I left, the clothes stunk so bad, even the ones that were in my dryer, that I had to wash them at the hotel. My laptop for work stunk like chemicals. Um, there's definitely something going on with the water, and I don't even know that I want to go back when they lift the evacuation. The accident brought renewed attention to so-called bomb trains transporting crude oil and other dangerous chemicals through communities across the United States. The White House has condemned a bid by House Republicans to create a commission to explore cuts to Social Security and Medicare as part of negotiations on raising the United States debt ceiling. White House spokesperson Andrew Bates told Bloomberg News, quote, The American people want more jobs and lower costs, not a death panel for Medicare and Social Security, unquote. This comes after House Republicans introduced a bill to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act, which contains major climate investments and allows Medicare negotiate lower drug costs. 
President Biden's delivering his annual State of the Union speech tonight. Several special guests have been invited to attend, among them Brett Cross, whose son was one of 19 schoolchildren killed by a gunman at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, last May, and the parents of Thierry Nichols, whose killing at the hands of Memphis police this month prompted murder charges against five officers. Biden will use his address to push for a ban on assault weapons and the passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Embattled New York Republican Congressmember George Santos is facing fresh scrutiny over a prospective staffer in his Capitol Hill office accusing him of sexual harassment. Eric Myers made the allegation on Twitter, publishing a complaint filed with the Office of Congressional Ethics. Meanwhile, Bloomberg reports Santos told potential donors that he had been a producer for the Broadway flop Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. A spokesperson for the short-lived musical responded, quote, of all the tribulations the producers had to endure, we are very pleased, proud and relieved to report working with George Santos was not one of them, unquote. This comes after reports emerged that the Brazilian lawyer Santos hired to defend him against fraud charges in Brazil was convicted and incarcerated for his involvement in a gang execution in 2007. In Georgia, the family members of environmental activist Manuel Esteban Paez Teran said Monday multiple Atlanta police officers shot the 26-year-old at least 13 times, killing Tehran during a raid last month on a peaceful encampment of protesters opposed to the proposed construction of a $90 million police training complex in Wilani Forest. The family conducted a private autopsy of Tehran, who went by the name Tortuguita, and demanded access to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's probe into the fatal shooting. Tehran's family, including their mother Belka, spoke out publicly for the first time at a news conference outside the DeKalb County Courthouse. Monday. They denounced charges of domestic terrorism against dozens of other Atlanta forest defenders who've been arrested protesting Cop City. This is Tehran's brother, Daniel Pius. Calling protesters only charged with trespassing misdemeanor as terrorists is not absolute honesty and trustworthiness. Raise your hand if you know of any terrorists known for their infamous trespassing. We have been lied to. That is the truth. My call to action goes to the police officers. Find your moral courage and place your nation over loyalty to individuals. Forcefully stop each other from killing civilians. Immigration rights advocates have released a series of newly obtained documents revealing the racist and violent language used by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE officials, against black asylum seekers. The communications between ICE agents are from 2020-21, while the Biden administration mass-deported black asylum seekers to Cameroon and other African countries in what became known as death flights. Dozens of Cameroonian asylum seekers deported by the U.S. faced torture, sexual violence, and forced disappearances upon return turning to Cameroon. At the time, Cameroonian asylum seekers also denounced torture from ICE agents who assaulted and restrained them, they said, and many times violently forced them to sign their deportation orders. In one email chain, an ICE official compares deportations to sports, while a high-ranking ICE official living in Cameroon complained about having difficulties finding a Catholic church there that wasn't 
Africanized. In a statement, Luz Lopez of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Immigrant Justice Project said, quote, Black migrants suffer unfair and cruel treatment by racist U.S. immigration policies when seeking safety from gang-related violence, political instability, and extreme disasters. For decades, they've been denied due process rights and endured immoral and humane treatment in violation of U.S. and international laws exposing them to further abuse, discrimination, and even death. In related news, over 150 people locked up at ICE's Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, have ended their hunger strike after nearly a week, but said they're ready to restart the peaceful demonstration if officials don't fulfill their promise to improve living conditions. Their demands include nutritious meals, clean facilities, proper medical care. Hunger strikers reported retaliation from ICE and the GEO Group, which runs the prison. In Maryland, two people, including a neo-Nazi leader, were arrested and charged with plotting to attack Maryland's power grid. Brandon Russell appeared in a Baltimore court Monday, while Sarah Clendaniel, whom Russell met while in prison, was indicted in Florida. The two face up to 20 years in prison. This is FBI Special Agent Thomas Sobachinsky. Sarah Beth Clendaniel and Brandon Russell conspired to inflict maximum harm on the power grid, a key component of our critical infrastructure. The accused were not just talking, but taking steps to fulfill their threats and further their extremist goals. The White House has said white supremacists and violent extremist militias pose the most significant domestic terrorism threat in the United States. And supporters of Leonard Peltier rallied in cities and towns across the United States and around the world Monday, calling for the release of the 78-year-old indigenous rights activist. The protest came as Peltier entered his 48th year behind bars for a crime he says he did not commit. His 1977 conviction for alleged involvement in killing two FBI agents in a shootout on the Pine Ridge Reservation was riddled with irregularities and prosecutorial misconduct. Last month, the former senior FBI agent Colleen Rowley told The Guardian in the 1990s she helped ghostwrite an op-ed arguing against Peltier's release. She said for years, new FBI agents were indoctrinated against Peltier. This is Christina Castro, an indigenous activist from New Mexico, speaking at a rally for Leonard Peltier Monday in Santa Fe. Now the government is actually admitting they don't know who shot these FBI agents but they will not give him a new trial or grant him clemency or a compassionate release based on a pure revenge and systemic racist um, agenda. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, thousands of people have died in Turkey and Syria after a pair of earthquakes have devastated the region. We'll get the latest. Stay with us.
Stay in My Heart by Syrian musician and composer Mohammed Fitian. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The World Health Organization is warning some 23 million people could be affected by the 7.8 and 7.5 earthquakes that struck southeastern Turkey and northern Syria on Monday, along with hundreds of aftershocks. The death toll from the earthquakes has risen to more than 5,000, expected to dramatically rise as search and rescue efforts intensify. More than 20,000 people have been injured. This is the strongest earthquake to hit Turkey since since 1939, when 30,000 people died. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has declared a three-month state of emergency. In a nationally televised speech, he said, quote, we're face to face with one of the biggest disasters ever for our region, unquote. Thousands of buildings collapsed after the earthquakes, and more than 30 countries have joined the United Nations, Norwegian Refugee Council, and others to help with rescue and recovery efforts, even as damaged buildings continued to fall and thousands slept outdoors in the freezing temperatures. In Turkey's border province of Hatay, residents anxiously search for loved ones among the rubble. Our relatives are dead. My sister's daughter died. She was 17. My sister's in-laws' children are stranded in the rubble. She's there with three children. They are not rescued yet. God, please help us. Please pray for us. I beg you, pray for us. Pray for us. There are aftershocks. It's uncertain what will happen to us. In Karamanmaras, Turkey, the epicenter of Monday's deadly earthquake, 63-year-old Halusi Ibrahim described being trapped under the rubble with his wife. I told myself this could be doomsday. Without having a chance to think about what we could do, the building collapsed on us. I was with my wife. My wife was trapped under me. I didn't hear from her for a very long time. When I finally managed to create a little bit of space for myself, I saw her lying unresponsive. I stayed with her for more or less three hours. Families in Karamanmaras gathered around a bonfire in order to stay warm in the freezing weather. This is a local resident, Nesset Kulier. We barely escaped from the inside house. We have four children and we left the house with them at the last moment. I guess there are several people trapped inside. It was a huge disaster. Our situation is very bad here. We are waiting without water or food. We are in a miserable state. Meanwhile, in Aleppo, Syrian survivors of the earthquake are helping rescue workers to clear the ruins of destroyed and damaged buildings, trying to break through cement to rescue other people. We haven't slept all night. We're really scared. We are in the street. We do not have a place to go. There is either the mosque or the street. Don't you want to go home? We're scared for the children. When we went back home, a new earthquake took place, so we went back to the street. We remembered the days of the war, but this is God's will. 
The Syrian government in Damascus is only allowing aid to enter the region through one border crossing. The U.N. Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says more than 4 million in northwest Syria, where the deadly earthquake struck, already rely on humanitarian assistance. For more, we're joined by Evita Nuzik, associate professor of urban planning at the New School here in New York. She's originally from Turkey, has been living and working there until 2010, after the Ismit earthquake of 1999. She worked to provide post-earthquake housing to survivors. Welcome to Democracy Now! This horrific natural catastrophe, um, 7.8 magnitude and 7.5 magnitude earthquake uh, on the Richter scale. Talk about what you understand is the damage right now and what the people face. Thank you, Amy. Um, it is really a grim situation right now in Turkey. Um, the impact of the disaster is nothing compared to what we have experienced in the past. Uh, the main example was 1939 earthquake, which was just one of these. And we have experienced two over seven magnitude and Richter scale. Uh, the area is quite uh, wide, so we are in a seismically uh, active region. So earthquake preparedness is a part of the protocols of institutions, students do drills and so on and so forth. So it's a part of culture one can speak. And it you know, happens even frequent enough to keep, keep that in mind. Uh, but what happened here is that two earthquakes, one after the other, the impact uh, area is more than 10 to 14 cities that has experienced collapses. So everybody had to fend for themselves. Um, and there has been uh, the uh, excess of the help from other cities uh, have been uh, interrupted and has been very slow due to the damage in the highways and uh, airports. Uh, inside the cities also, we have been hearing a lot about critical infrastructure damages like hospitals, uh, which should be standing and providing service. So lots of things happen at once right after an earthquake um, that you need to provide shelter, safety for those who are out. And also there has to be very fast um, and you're racing with time here and hypothermia because it's been uh, super cold in, in this area around like 20 Fahrenheit degree with um, even cooler um, temperatures with the, with the wind. Uh, so do, those who are under the debris are also um, having shorter time. The first 24 hours has been very critical. Um, and now we are uh, going beyond there um, as well. So it, it is unfolding. And as you have mentioned, uh, even though the numbers are um, around 3,000 at the moment, uh, we are expecting a much higher death toll uh, in the area. Uh, around 6,000 buildings have been uh, confirmed, demolished. Even with a simple calculation, um, we are talking about with average four in every household, we are talking about 25,000 people at least uh, in there. And the area, southeastern region, uh, has a, a higher uh, household rate with more children and also elderly generational living. And every news are in terms of we saw these frightening pictures of some buildings completely collapsing within seconds while a building next to them was still standing. Uh, what does that say about the the building codes, uh, knowing that uh, Turkey is prone to earthquakes? And after the, the last uh, big earthquake in 1999, what was done uh, to uh, uh, to ensure that buildings were able to withstand 
uh, these types of earthquakes. Thanks. So, so 1999 earthquake has been a threshold um, and the building codes had been updated with another revision in 2018. Um, and there, the process whole uh, process changed. So there has been an auditing process um, to look for it. But what we see exactly in, in Marash and in, in epicenter um, Gaziantep as well, um, we have seen uh, new buildings collapsing. Um, that are very recent, which tells uh, certain things that there might be up to code, but maybe the soil and ground analysis was uh, not adequate or the monitoring um, of the actual constructions has not been really up to date. So it tells a lot that there has been um, the code and regulations has been um, up to date, but there are some other human errors. And that's what it tells us in terms of construction quality. And uh to what extent is the continuing conflict between the Turkish government and Kurdish rebels? Will, what kind of effect will that have uh, on the uh, continuing rescue uh, operations and, of course, in the rebuilding that must come afterward? Um, well, the conflict and the current economic situation, there has been a lot of issues that uh, made the region really not prepared uh, for anything at this extent. So um, we are talking about certain things. It's not um, this area has been um, a mixture. It's an international in many ways that there has been Arabs and Kurds. Um, living in the area. There's a large number of Syrian refugees um, who have been gradually from the camps, have been living in the cities. Gaziantep has like more than 20 percent of its resi residents are Syrian refugees. Um, before the conflict, there are other issues like language, like in the search and rescue operations. And I think there has been, um, you know, these kind of disasters are, they say, equalizers, but they're not equalizers in the sense that those who are in more need prior to these earthquake um, will be in a more dire situation with less options. So I would think that the existing conflicts and they will become more inflated in the sense that it will slow the recovery, which is a very, very long um, road ahead of us, uh, thinking from the 1999 recovery operations, and that has been in the uh, western part of the, uh, Turkey and um, with a lot of resources um, at their disposal, uh, while the southeastern region uh, lacks most of that infrastructure in, in particular um, that will um, require a lot of effort to, to rebuild. Professor, the epicenter of the initial quake is Gaziantep in Turkey, as you mentioned, which houses hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees. It's where the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, runs one of its largest operations. If you can talk about what this means for there, and also over the border in Syria, it hit both the last rebel-held territory in Syria and, um, and the rest of Syria. And what kind of aid will get through by the Syrian government to the rebel-held area? Um, 
so as you said, like Gaziantep is holding more than 400,000 people. The city is around 2 million um, and more than 20 percent is Syrian refugees who have been initially um, crossed the border and in camps and transitioned into um, bigger cities uh, by the Turkish government starting from 2018. So they've been living um, in the city with uh, mixed with the existing population of uh, Gaziantep. So there has been an increase in the past years, that means new construction of buildings as well to accommodate all the newcomers. Um, there has been already certain conflicts because of the sudden change of, like drastic change of demographic, demographics in, in the area. Um, for now, um, the, the main cities still um, received a lot of resources and supports. So while they're more closer to border, Hatay, for instance, had struggled much more, uh, which also is um, hosting one of the temporary, still temporary camps of um, refugees around there. So um, um, we can say um, the, the resources will be um, more hard to, harder to reach. And for the Syrian border, there was only one allowed border crossing, which is currently um, not accessible. So that means um, this, on the Syrian side, all the border situation is even um, harder in terms of access uh, search and rescue tools, because you really need large construction machinery um, to work with the rubble and, and also um, lots of manpower, even though they're like around 16, 18,000 um, national and international rescue teams uh, working in the area. Um, it is not enough um, thinking of the extent of the damage. This is really out of scale. Thinking of um, the whole New York State totally leveled and uh, we cannot communicate um, uh, with one another and to understand the extent of the damage. We're talking about a really large scale catastrophe. And from your experience uh, with the 1999 earthquake, what's been the ability of the Turkish uh, government officials to respond to a catastrophe of this type, to uh, re to build new housing for those who are displaced, uh, especially in light of the fact that there's supposed to be national elections uh, in just a few months uh, uh, in Turkey. Uh, what's your sense of the government's capacity and what international uh, what other countries can do to help the Turkish people? So, as I said, this is a long run. I mean, there are immediate things that needs to be done right now, which is all around search and rescue and providing the basic needs for the ones who are rescued. Um, but we are talking about temporary permanent housing that will go years um, in recover and probably replacement as well. Some of these um, areas cannot be resettled, so they, they need to be relocations uh, maybe discussed. So we are talking about a large scale work, which will require a lot of um, aid that um, needs to come in and use um, in a way um, that will help people with uh, the least, you know, destruction to their to their livelihoods uh, and communities. Um, the the government uh, has um, a lot of capacity in the sense that after 1999, that we have been um, uh, having a special earthquake tax, and we have been um, prepared in the sense that, uh, as I mentioned, building codes and so on. So there's a lot of preparation in terms of mobilizing. Um, I think this extent was not something um, the, the local government was not as prepared. And we see a lot of decisions are much more 
um, centralized. Um, uh, since we last experienced this, uh, there has been a slowness in um, deploying um, the search and rescue teams or four teams who arrived from uh, different places to go to uh, uh, and find healthy information about where where is the highest need. Um, the uh, the 99 election 1999 uh, earthquake was also followed by elections in early 2000s which um the current ruling party um ak party has come to power uh based on the work and the promises that they uh came with the with the earthquake preparation and risk reduction um in general so uh, it is very crucial, um, and as I said, this is such a paralyzing moment uh, for every part uh, it, that it's been not clear how their response will unfold. But so far, it has been quite slow, and they might have an impact every, in the elections. Every minute makes a difference right now. Still in the recovery phase, uh, phase uh, families living in all these buildings, people living there were asleep. It was around 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, and but still people can survive if aid gets to them. Uh, Professor Uzer, how would you like the media to cover this enormous tragedy? What's missing from the coverage you've seen so far and how can people help? Um, thank you so much uh, for asking that. There's a lot of misinformation going around, uh, former footages, um, and it is hard to get healthy information. There are some groups that are working online right now um, to uh, create real data, uh, for instance, on mapping uh, the rural, which we didn't even come come to that, unfortunately. We're talking about bigger cities, uh, but the rural areas, hard-to-access areas, are not uh, necessarily, we don't have an updated information. So there are um, and groups that are crowdsourcing information, and there are groups like Tate Org that are working on um, uh, clear information, um, traffic, and for those who are still under the debris, um, who could reach with their phones and so on. Um, there, there are uh, international, particularly from listeners from the U.S., that there are ways to support the local organizations that are working. Um, in the area, there's Bridge to Turkey and uh, Turkish Philanthropy Fund, for instance, two of these organizations that have direct access to local networks like Ahbap and Akut, uh, search and rescue and fast relief operations. Um, so one way to support uh, Turkish people um, trying to really save the loved ones and at the same time survive, uh, those will be um, one of those options. Well, uh, Evan with thank you so much for being with us. Associate Professor of Urban Planning at the New School here in New York, originally from Turkey, living and working there um, until 2010 after the Ismit earthquake of 1999. She worked to provide post-earthquake housing to survivors. Next up, the Alphabet Boys. A new podcast exposes how the FBI infiltrated Black Lives Matter protests after the police killing of George Floyd. We'll speak with investigative reporter Trevor Aronson, who broke the story, as well as a former FBI agent and a Denver activist who says he was entrapped by the FBI informant. Stay with us. Hello. If 
you see me on this road, come say hello. Please say hello. Cause I'm lost out on this road. For I am just a visitor in this land. Said I am just a visitor in this land. Things that I've heard and things I've said, things I've been told, and these books of rain, rain's gonna fall, wind's gonna. I'm Just a Visitor by Jeb Loy Nichols. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Evidence has emerged that the FBI played a direct role in infiltrating racial justice protests after the police killing of George Floyd in 2020. A new podcast out today called Alphabet Boys, documents how the FBI paid an informant at least $20,000 to infiltrate and spy on activist groups in Denver, Colorado. The informant also encouraged activists to purchase guns and commit violence. This is the trailer to Alphabet Boys. The summer of 2020. I know, I'm going to go get my gas mask. Millions protested for racial justice across the country, with some of these protests turning violent. Over the heads of the shield! That summer, it felt like history in the making. Big changes were coming. And then, the protests just... Stopped. There were these rumors that government agents had infiltrated the movement pushing it toward collapse. It sounded paranoid, right? But you know what? Okay, it is August 28th, 2020 at approximately 4.02 p.m. It wasn't. I'm Trevor Aronson, and I'm a journalist covering federal law enforcement, the alphabet agencies. Is the FBI sometimes you gotta grab the little guy to go after the big guy. This is Alphabet Boys, a new series from Western Sound and iHeart Podcasts. Each season, we'll take you deep inside an undercover investigation. In season one, we're headed to Denver. UC7775 in Denver, Colorado. Today is August 25th. Where FBI agents are investigating political activists following the murder of George Floyd. A mysterious man rolls into town. He's wearing military fatigues, and he has a cigar dangling from his lips. The car he drives is unmistakable, a silver hearse. He was very convincing, but he did explain, you know, he was before this BLM movement, and inside this hearse was like a lot of guns. Was this the guy the movement needed to take things to the next level? At the end of the day, you come to me, I got something for you. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Or did he have a secret agenda? He was just waiting for me to set the date, the time, the meeting spot, and then for sure he was trying to get it to happen. He's a bad guy. Bad guys attract bad guys. And 
I feel like he's going to keep doing this forever. They want to cover up the fact that local, state, and federal law enforcement caused violence here. The trailer to the new podcast, Alphabet Boys, out today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast platform. The podcast centers on an FBI informant named Mickey Windecker, a convicted felon who once fought, he said, with the Kurdish Peshmerga. This clip from Alphabet Boys begins with a Denver racial justice activist named Zebedias Hall, who will be joining us, talking about Mickey Windecker. I didn't know much about him, but he drove a hearse. And inside this hearse was like a lot of guns, you know, like AR-15s and all other kinds of I never held one of those before in my life, and I held it. And I was like, oh, shit. But I'm pro-gun and everything, but I never held anything like that. Yeah, it was just this badass dude, you know, talking about he worked in a foreign military. He was for the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, it just seemed interesting, you know. In August 2020, with millions of Americans protesting across the country, activist Zeb Hall invites a guy he's met at one of the demonstrations to his apartment in Denver to talk about plans for the future. The way I look at it is like, it has to happen, it has to happen. But it's like you said, I mean, how extreme do you expect it? Would you want it to go? An excerpt from the podcast Alphabet Boys, the FBI informant Mickey Windecker played a key role in organizing the protests in Denver. He would also go on to give the activist Zebedias Hall $1,500 to buy a gun for him, which led to Zeb Hall being arrested for transferring a firearm to a felon. Some of the FBI's actions have been compared to the agency's covert COINTELPRO program—that's counterintelligence program—which targeted civil rights groups and other activist movements in the 1960s and 70s. In a moment, Zebedias Hall will join us from Denver. We'll also be joined by former FBI agent Mike German, who now works at the Brennan Center. But first, let's turn to Trevor Aronson who created the Alphabet Boys podcast. Trevor's an award-winning investigative journalist, contributing writer for The Intercept. He's author of the book, The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. I mean, this is an astounding podcast series, Trevor. You've got the undercover recordings of, for example, the black activist Zeb speaking to this man, Mickey Windecker, who would travel around in a silver hearse. Um, first, if you can tell us where you got these recordings, if you can, but this lay out the story for us. Sure. I, I can't talk about sourcing for the recordings or the records, but, but what I can say is that what's significant about this show is that it's the first behind-the-scenes look at how the FBI infiltrated and investigated racial justice groups and the racial justice movement during the summer of 2020, which for two years now has always been an open question, which is how did the FBI respond to racial ju the racial justice movement given the context that the FBI had previously designated black political activists as so-called black identity extremists or anti-government extremists. <clears throat> and what's significant about this is that the FBI in Denver, according to internal FBI recordings or internal FBI reports and re undercover recordings, hired a convicted felon with a history of sexual assault 
and, and menacing with a weapon to infiltrate these groups for, while being paid thousands of dollars. And, and the shades of COINTELPRO that are part of this rise from the fact that Mickey Windecker, the informant, ended up becoming a leader in the protest movement, just as we saw informants in the 1960s and 1970s during COINTELPRO become leaders in those movements, and then accuse other leaders, or the real leaders of these groups, of being informants, a practice called snitch jacketing that was used to devastating effect against black political groups in the 1960s. And that's exactly what happened in Denver. Mickey became a leader of the racial justice movement there, accused real leaders of being informants when they were not. And then, once he was in a position of leadership, attempted to entrap local activists in crimes, in some cases violent crimes. In fact, Mickey and the FBI went so far as to try to stitch together a supposed plot to assassinate Colorado's attorney general, Phil Weiser, which ultimately went nowhere, but shows you the scale that the FBI had in trying to manufacture a plot that activists could get behind that would then reveal these activists as being violent. And I think it's, under, I think it's important to understand the context in which this happened. Um, in, in 2020, the, the Trump administration at the time was really beating the drum on this idea that Antifa and Black Lives Matter activists were potentially violent. This was a narrative that was being reinforced and echoed by right-wing media at the time. And what you're seeing in, in these undercover recordings is the FBI essentially trying to make that possible and happen. Um, ultimately, that does not happen. Obviously, there was no pl- assassination plot or attempt against Phil Weiser, the Colorado Attorney General. But the FBI, using this paid informant, went to extreme lengths to try to make that happen. Well, uh, Trevor, as you mentioned, uh, this uh, was a tactic used often uh, uh, during COINTELPRO in the 60s and the 70s, but it's become standard practice for uh, the FBI and law enforcement. If I think back to during the Seattle World Trade Organization protests, there were undercover agents then trying to uh, spur extreme action uh, uh, among the protesters. Uh, during the period after the uh, uh, 9-11 attacks, there were undercover FBI agents who tried to infiltrate uh, Muslim groups around the country and trying to get them to participate in uh uh, in violent acts. Uh, so this has been a regular uh, feature of, of the FBI. They, have you been able to see whether they were doing this to the same extent among the right wing groups that were actually involved in, in major uh, in major terrorist attacks across the country? Absolutely. So this is a tactic that became commonplace in the post-9-11 era, which was that the FBI used undercover agents or informants to, in, in the case of uh, counterterrorism investigations, go into Muslim communities, find someone who might be interested in violence, and make everything possible, providing the means, the opportunity, and in, in most cases, the bomb or the weapon that ultimately would be used, then arrest that person and announce to the public a terrorism plot foiled. And, and so what's significant here is that we're seeing a lot of the powers and tactics used against would-be terrorists or or supposed terrorists in the post-9-11 era being applied against political activists in Denver in the summer of 2020. And and the reason that is significant is that the internal FBI records show in the case in Denver that the FBI launched its investigation based on nothing more than First Amendment-protected activities, which were essentially things that Zebediah Hall and other activists had said, which in some cases were quite incendiary, but ultimately were First First Amendment-protected activities. 
activities. And yet they launched this investigation based solely on that without any reason to believe that any of these activists were moving toward a plot of violence or, or anything of the like. And as, as for the question of whether this happens on the right, it does. You know, obviously there have been other plots that have, that have targeted right-wing activists. The, the most well-known right now is the plot that... Uh, targeted a group of men in Michigan in a supposed plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, and so I think what's important about this story now is that we are entering this phase when Jim Jordan and the Congress are about to launch this committee that is specifically looking to establish this narrative that the FBI is solely focused on uh, this type of tactic against right-wing groups and right-wing political activists, when that isn't true. What ultimately is, is true is that the FBI has an enormous amount of power that deserves a lot more oversight than it currently receives, and all sorts of groups from left to right are subjected to this kind of uh, activity by the FBI. And so this narrative that the right wing is attempting to establish, that the FBI is prejudiced against right wing groups and we're only seeing this activity among right wing groups, there is evidence of that. And no doubt Jim Jordan will find it. But the truth is that this is far more extensive. It involves many groups. And in in most cases, I would argue, if you look at the history of prosecutions in the post 9-11 era, these types of tactics are used far more against left wing activists and left wing political groups than they are against right Group. Even though the intelligence committees have found that it is domestic terrorism, far right wing, that is the greatest threat um, uh, to the United States right now. Um, and you're talking about the select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government chaired by Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. That's meeting on Thursday. But let's turn to a video capturing when FBI informant Mickey Windecker met with his FBI handlers. By the way, he's denying he's an FBI informant met with his FBI handlers before he met with the Denver activist Zeb Hall. It is August, August 28th, 2020, at approximately 4.02 p.m. Uh, Special Agent Scott Dahlstrom with Special Agent uh, Byron Mitchell, uh, CHS, for meet with uh, Zebedias Hall. Thank you. You can hear this. I'll put it in my front pocket, right? Yeah. Okay, got it. See how nice and slender they are. Video look good? Yep. Yeah, look handsome. Mm-hmm. Not as handsome as that kid. So that's Mickey Windecker talking to his handlers, going out to meet the guest we're joined by right now, Zebedias Hall, or Zeb Hall, a Denver activist targeted by the FBI, featured in the Alphabet Boys podcast, joining us from Denver. I mean, Zeb, this is a, such an amazing story, because you'd think if the FBI wanted to infiltrate a group, like a Black Lives Matter group, they wouldn't have someone who just appears so different in every way. This white guy, who is blatantly driving the silver hearse filled with automatic weapons. I mean, it is amazing. So talk about how you met up with him, your involvement in BLM, Black Lives Matter, and why you came to believe um, that he uh, was a, you know, a fellow traveler, if you will. Um, I first met—well, um, thanks for having me. I first met Mickey at one of the uh, earlier protests, uh, either it had been uh, July, early July or late June. Um, he was around a lot of folks, you know, uh, taking information, uh, phone numbers and whatnot. Um, it was quite odd. You know, we were all confused. We didn't know what to expect, and uh, it was uh, very terrifying down the line when we found out more about him. Um, you know, it's a very dangerous history this gentleman had, and— uh, 
I think it's very terrifying, especially the fact that, you know, it was uh, sent to our BLM movement in the uh, hopes of tarnishing it. And Zeb Hall, what led you to begin to think that he might not be on the up and up? And uh, and and why did what were some of the examples of ways he tried to get people to do things they normally would not do? Uh, yeah, it's um, towards the uh, <clears throat> I would probably say uh, towards, uh, you know, um, there was a march on the uh, headquarters of the uh, police department. And, you know, people were just starting to get, you know, more how would I say, uh, uh, rowdy than usual. And, you know, he's uh, yelling at people, you know, uh, ordering, making orders and whatnot. And sometime down the line, you know, it was really evident when the Colorado Springs Antifa released an article uh, explaining more about this gentleman. Uh, It was uh, very heinous and uh, scary. So until that article came out, you had no suspicion that he that he might be an agent provocateur or a or undercover informant. Uh, it was very confusing, you know. Um, you know, we were it was so much going on that summer. We didn't know what to expect, but we never would have thought that the FBI would have sent a gentleman like that uh, to our movement. Uh, everything was really confusing. Um, you know, it's so hard to put things together looking back now, um, but. It's. Uh, I would say at the end of the day that you know I think most of the things that uh, happened, either it be violent or uh, confusion, wouldn't have happened without the uh, FBI and their informant Michael Windecker. Let's go to hear the FBI informant Mickey Windecker in a recording he made after he was accused of being an informant. He spoke in front of a flag for the Kurdistan Workers Party and an AR-15 style assault rifle. That was his background. So there's a group that, or a individual that's claiming that they are Antifa Colorado Springs. And in fact, that they, I believe that they are actually not Antifa Colorado Springs because I believe they are actually a cop. This individual has posted stuff discrediting other individuals that are fighting against the fascist in Denver, Colorado, such as cutting the plastic and other communist groups and other individuals. I, for one, am not amused or pleased about the f- that's going on. So that's Mickey Windecker um, accusing Antifa of being the informants. Um, Zeb Hall, talk about how you were entrapped then, um, how he gave you money uh, to buy a gun for him and what happened next. Uh, yeah, I'll start off saying, you know, I was scared, but, you know, I've got to own the fact that I uh, purchased the uh, firearm. Um, you know, I, it was just quite odd. And, um, you know, then the way in which, you know, he had me, he explained it to me, uh, I just didn't understand. I never purchased a gun before, you know, and I get this gun for this gentleman. And, uh, you know, um, shortly after, you know, the uh, information comes out about his, uh, criminal history and who he is. And, you know, I'm terrified at this point and come around January, you know, an article comes out, you know, uh, with Mr. Shelby, uh, who will be mentioned later on. And at that point, you know, I was absolutely terrified. You know, it's, um, I was just afraid. You know, I, I own what I did. And, you know, I never thought I'd be in a situation like this, but, you know, um, here we are. It was just a terrifying experience. We were all afraid. I'd like to bring in former FBI special agent. Uh, Mike German, uh, uh, 
now a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. He's written a book titled Disrupt, Discredit and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. Mike German, uh, talk to us about these efforts by the FBI to especially target uh, a movement, social movements uh, on the left. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, Trevor has spent a large part of his career covering this change in, in the FBI's undercover tactic where they uh, have aggressively used uh, informants, had informant-driven operations uh, targeting mostly Muslim Americans in terrorism investigations with, with a, uh, a tactic that wasn't designed to uncover criminal activity that was ongoing, but rather to manufacture criminal activity, to create a case where no case had existed before. And what I think is really critical uh, about the reporting on Alphabet Boys is that in many of those cases, Trevor had to rely on court documents or uh, Freedom of Information Act records and, and statements of the defendants. And defenders of these tactics at, at the FBI and elsewhere would often say, well, the FBI probably had some other kind of information that justified the use of, of these tactics that couldn't be released in court or, or discussed openly. Where here, Trevor has the entire investigative file. And we can see that this, the FBI here chose somebody with, with a serious criminal record uh, to infiltrate a social movement. Uh, the, and target people who were were much less involved in any criminal activity and actually to stoke violence at these protests. Uh, and, and that's a tactic that, you know, as discussed, is straight out of the COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO playbook, where the, the tactics were meant to disrupt and divide the social movements rather than to uncover serious crime. Um. Zeb, you were sentenced to three years probation. I'm wondering, with the police killing of um, T. Ray Nichols, and also you were dealing not only with George Floyd, but uh, in um, in Aurora, Colorado at the time, the horrific police killing of uh, Elijah McClain, um, with the massive uh, crackdown on protesters after that, as they would engage in violin vigils, because he played violins for cats and dogs at the local shelter injected with this massive dose of ketamine. Has this changed your approach to the world? Are you afraid to be an activist? No, I'm, I'm more committed. Um, you know, it's a, it was a terrifying experience, but, you know, I know what I signed up for. Um, this is a lifelong thing. Um, you know, even though it does affect us as black people more, I do understand this is a situation that all people in America have to deal with. Um, so, it, um, no, I'm, I'm more committed than I was before. This is, a, this is going to be a lifelong thing. And Trevor Aronson, in the last 30 seconds, we have what you want people to take away from this podcast series dropping today, Alphabet Boys. 
So I, th- I think it's important to, to recognize that not only did Mickey Windecker try to set up activists like Zeb in, in specific crimes, but that he played a large role in turning what were otherwise demonstrations and protests into what became full-out assaults on police stations in Denver. Some of the, the most violent incidents that we saw in Denver that summer had Mickey's fingerprints all over them. He was hyping them up. He was encouraging people to attend. He was encouraging people to become more and more violent. And so, in, at least in Denver, we have evidence that the government, the, a government agent, was behind many of these protests that ultimately turned violent. Well, this is a truly astounding podcast series. Trevor Aronson, the host of the new Alphabet Boys podcast, award-winning investigative journalist, contributing writer for The Intercept. Zebedias Hall, thanks so much for joining us from Denver, an activist targeted by the FBI, featured in the podcast, and Mike German for joining us as well, former FBI agent, now a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thank you. 